The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long Yi Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long Yi supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long Yi has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long Yi products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. So the way to think about it is you're used to the fermentation of sugar, making beer, making wine, right? What we do is we have a bacteria that eats gases, hydrogen, CO, and CO2. Carbon-eating microbes that give us Lululemon leggings and jet fuel. How Lanzatech converts industrial waste gases to petrochemical killers. This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Synthetic biology, CO2 utilization, sustainable aviation fuels, industrial decarbonization, all what I would call sexy areas of climate tech today, but also not entirely new. In the infamous Clean Tech 1.0 wave a decade ago, a huge amount of attention went to a set of precursor technologies that were then deemed biofuels. That wave was widely considered a bust, at least from a venture capital perspective, and indeed most of the startups that emerged at that time can be found in the graveyard today. But not all. And in fact, there's a very small crop, so to speak, of companies that made it through the mists of the 2010s to emerge anew as climate tech leaders in today's resurgent environment. And perhaps no company better exemplifies this group than Lanzatech. Lanzatech was founded in 2005 as a biofuels company. But today, it's a leader in clean fuels and chemicals, more importantly. It has well over 200 employees. It's spun out an entire additional company focused on jet fuel production. It's raised over $500 million to bring its technology to market, which actually is commercial. The chemicals they're producing will make everything from plastics to medical supplies to fabric for Lululemon. I've been brewing up an investment thesis to be discussed more at a later date around all the ways in which the desire to decarbonize from corporates, from investors, and from consumers will create stratification in what have traditionally been pure commodity sectors like chemicals and like materials. If you can produce the same thing in the same cost range, but you could do so in a CO2-free or even better carbon-negative process, you'll reap the rewards. Lanzatech is a great test case for that thesis, as well as a great story to tell about the history of this sector born through one individual company. So with no further ado, my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Holmgren, Lanzatech CEO since 2010. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you. Great to have you here. I want to start by uh, talking through the history of Lanzatech, because it's uh, for, for a startup, it is a fairly long history. So give us the relatively brief arc of Lanzatech's history today. Yeah, so Lanzatech was founded in New Zealand by Sean Simpson in 2005. So exactly as you said, 
it's been a 16 year journey to date. Um, we, um, um, went from lab to demo in 2012 to commercial in 2018. We've got a commercial plant running, taking waste gases at a steel mill and making ethanol from that. So, um, tough tech takes a long time and a lot of money. And so here we are. <laughs> so we'll talk more about why steel mills, why ethanol. But first, that timeline is indicative, as you said, of something about tough tech. So founded in 2005, demo in 2012. So that was seven years to demo and then commercial in 2018. So another six years from demo to fully commercial. Uh, you joined in 2010, is that right? That's right. I was invited to be the CEO, the first CEO of Lancetech in 2010. Um, yeah. And I gladly accepted because you could tell even then that it was going to be completely disruptive, revolutionary. It was going to change the way we looked at carbon. And I would say 11 years later, that's pretty clear now. Did you anticipate the timeline being as it has been? Or does everything take longer than you expect? <laughs> well, everything takes longer. I told my husband I was supposed to have retired. And I said, five years five years and then I'll be done with this and uh, I'll feel good about the whole thing. But it's been 11 years and we're still on the journey. And and many more to go, I'm sure, uh, though hopefully you'll get to retire somewhere in there. Let's talk about what Lanzatech does. I mean, you, you alluded to the first commercial project being uh, producing ethanol at a steel mill, but let's take a step back from there to start. What's the fundamental technology innovation that Lanzatech is pursuing? Yeah. So, so the way to think about it is you're used to the fermentation of sugar, making beer, making wine, right? What we do is we have a bacteria that eats gases, hydrogen, CO, and CO2. And so these are gases that you would commonly find in an industrial site. These are gases that you would find if you take solids and gasify them. And these can all be converted to ethanol by our bacteria. It's a naturally occurring organism. And so all we've done is optimized it so that it gets much, much more efficient at taking gases and making ethanol. The, the other key thing that you might want to know about this is you're used to a batch process. You know, you put the sugar and the yeast and you leave it alone for a while. This is a continuous process. So we also had to develop a new reactor system that allowed these gases that are not soluble to contact the water, which is where the bacteria is, is swimming. So there's a lot of things that we had to do to be able to scale this technology, but actually looks much more like a refinery than a fermentation. How so? What is it that what is it that looks more akin to a refinery? Well, the the reactors and the water recycling and all of these things look a lot like a unit operation at a refinery because it's continuous. So the piping in, the piping out and all of it everything in between would be more like a refinery unit operation. Okay, so you take industrial gases as the input. You said hydrogen, CO, carbon monoxide, and CO2, carbon dioxide. And then you use your bacteria and these reactors to produce ethanol on the other side. Why ethanol? Well, actually, um, 
<laughs> we had to commercialize gas fermentation, which nobody had ever commercialized. So um, we just wanted to let the bacteria do what it wanted to do, which is make ethanol. And we just optimized around that. We didn't feel that we needed to teach it to do cartwheels. Ethanol was a good enough product. And so we, and, and we believe, just so you know, that ethanol, we don't think of ethanol as a gasoline blending component. That is not why we make ethanol. We make ethanol so that we can aggregate this carbon in all of these waste resources. The carbon and energy gets aggregated by conversion to ethanol, and then we can move the ethanol around. You're not going to move municipal solid waste. You're not going to move an industrial gas. And so what we're actually doing is we're letting the bacteria do what it knows how to do. We've optimized it to make it make economic sense. We have ethanol, and then we take ethanol and use it as a feedstock for everything else we want to make. Right. I think that's probably an important I'm sure you have to make this point a lot. And it also probably, uh, my guess is that it changed over the course of Lanzatech's history because in, in 20, 2005, when Lanzatech was founded, that was back in the sort of heyday of biofuels world and where people were really excited about making ethanol for fuels and fuel and ethanol blending into gasoline and so on. Um, and so th there was a lot of excitement around that. And that has sort of, that has ebbed as time has gone on, but it turns out ethanol as a carrier of these uh, gases, which can then be used to turn into a bunch of other things, has has different applications. Is that right? Yeah, sure. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Initially, ethanol was a perfectly good product and one that everybody wanted to make. But with time, it became clearer and clearer that, you know, internal combustion engine wasn't long for this world, right? And so we needed to find an ability to, to do other things with that ethanol. Uh, and more and more than what you start to see is the world at the same time started to change. All of a sudden, people cared about where the polyester in their clothing came from. And so all of a sudden, it became logical to transition to, okay, wait a second, ethanol can be turned into ethylene. And guess what? Ethylene is how we make everything in the world today. And so that Yes, there's certainly a, a transition mentally um, to doing something other than ethanol. And so let's, uh, I want to talk about the inputs a little bit more, and then I want to talk about the outputs a little bit more. So on the input side, I mean, you said you take in CO2 and hydrogen and, and CO, but uh, what does it actually come from? What are the sources that are best suited to your process and and why? And then also related to that, Talk about what that means for the carbon cycle. What is the CO2 impact of taking those things out of the carbon cycle? Yeah, that's, that's um, excellent. Excellent question. So let me see if I can splice it. Um, so if you're looking at carbon monoxide, that is a byproduct of steel production and ferroalloy production. It is not part of the heating cycle or the industrial heating cycle at those steel mills, but rather is a byproduct of the chemistry of the process. They start with coke, they reduce the surface of, of the metal, and CO, carbon monoxide, comes off. This can either be flared and goes out the flue as particular emissions, or sometimes it's flared, but in a way that you capture that residual heat that was in the carbon monoxide. So we're essentially preventing it from going out into the atmosphere. Depending upon um, where the steel mill is, we prevent on the order of 50 to 100,000 tons of CO2 from going out the flue 
per facility that makes about 15 million gallons of ethanol. So that that's what we're able to do is we're mitigating this emission. It's also important to note that when you think about combustion, right, burning this carbon monoxide, you also get a lot of particulate emissions. We work in a lot of places where the sky is black and, and that is from this combustion. And so we're actually preventing both of those problems, right? The particulate emissions and the greenhouse gas emissions. So we believe that if we aggregate all the industrial waste and all of the um, gasified solids, we could take a chunk of about 7% of the CO2, global CO2 emissions. Um, so that's a big number. <laughs> and, you know, that's without looking at the part of our technology that can take CO2, carbon dioxide, and convert it directly. We don't quantify that because that's a direct one-for-one -one saving. But um, we have been... Um, taking CO2 and combining it with green hydrogen to make ethanol. And so you can imagine a day where you put that at the flu stack of a CO2 emission, or you could even look at direct air capture. I think, you know, we're doing an aviation project with carbon engineering where they're going to take carbon out of the air, CO2 out of the air, and we're going to convert it to ethanol, and then we'll convert it to jet fuel. So in in the context of a steel mill type application where that's the input, are you you're attaching carbon capture to the flue stack or are you doing pre-combustion capture and then just siphoning off the CO? It's just pre-combustion. You just put a pipe before it goes out the flue and then you compress it and dump it into the bioreactor. That's all you're doing. And then the idea is put a bioreactor on site at the steel mill or whatever the source of capture is. So on site, you're going to convert what would have otherwise been flared emissions to ethanol and then take that ethanol and then ship it somewhere else and either use it as ethanol in cases where there is an ethanol market or convert do another step and convert the ethanol, as you said, to ethylene or maybe to jet fuel. We'll talk about some of these applications, but that's the basic idea, right? Ethanol is the unit of movement in yeah. this ecosystem. That's right. That's right. And, and, and that's actually why it works because you don't actually want to move the waste gases. And frankly, if you were moving them, it probably would be because they're not waste, right? If you're going to aggregate these byproducts of some production process, there's usually a good economic driver to do that. And if you're, you know, it's not waste anymore. So let's talk about the economics then. Um, you know, you're, you have multiple different input sources, be it, you know, CO from a, a steel mill or CO2 from a direct air capture facility or whatever it might be. So presumably you have different costs of inputs. You have to tailor the bioreactor to whatever the individual application is. And on the output side, you've got lots of different things that you're going to do with the ethanol either convert it or, or sell it directly is the, what are the sort of low hanging fruit? Like the economics are no brainers markets. And then what are the big long-term, you know, if we can really drive the technology, here's where we get. Yeah. So the, the, the way to think about it is the core fermentation technology is exactly the same, no matter what the input stream. So the block, the chunk of metal in the middle after the gas comes in doesn't change whether it's CO2 that's been directly air captured or whether CO that has come from a steel mill. So the cost, obviously that's the lowest hanging fruit. 
Steel mill gases, ferroalloy gases have 50% carbon monoxide. So all I do is compress that into a reactor and the bacteria eats it and makes ethanol. Um, it gets harder, right, and more expensive if I start to bolt on unit operations, right? So if I'm going to add a direct air capture machine, that's going to cost capital. If I'm going to add a gasifier to take municipal solid waste, that's going to add uh, capital as well. So think of it as how much capital and how much operating cost you add every time you bolt on a unit operation. But at the end of the day, you can bolt on as many as you want. You know, add green hydrogen, bring in biogas, convert the biogas, and then the CO, the carbon dioxide. There is so much that you can do, but you got to remember what you've got is a, a core fermentation technology. And everything else is just a hunk of metal that you're putting in front of it to allow a solid to become a gas or something from the air to be input to your stream. Is it also a reasonable heuristic to think about it that the the more uh, steps, the more chemical conversions you do to get to the end product, probably the more expensive it's going to be at the end of the day? No question about it. And and you asked about economics. And I, I mentioned that we take ethanol to ethylene and then convert it to other things. Well, what are we competing with? If you're making polyester for um, Lululemon, right? They would have started with ethylene, cracked ethylene, which is dirt cheap, right? And I've come along Ethylene now. is just for anybody, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. just for anybody who's not aware, ethylene is like the single largest precursor chemical market in the world. It's a gigantic market and we produce all, almost all of it via methane cracking. That's right. And, and, and thanks for adding that because, um, it, it is an important point. And I think actually, this is something I'd love to talk a little bit more about. I think most of us think that we're going to eliminate fossil carbon from our economy by decarbonizing the power sector or potentially transitioning all of our fuels, whether they be gasoline or diesel. But at the end of the day, 30% of today's fossil inputs go to making all the things you and I use in our daily lives, from our children's toys to our apparel, to our shoes, to the rubber in our tires. And we're going to have to take that out too, right? We're going to have to decarbonize all of that. And um, and that's actually part of what we're trying to do. And so if we go back to cost, though, it's pretty hard to compete with fracked natural gas, right? And so now not only am I starting one step further up the chain, I got to take ethanol to ethylene, right? I also got to make that ethanol. And so that whole piece is more expensive. Can we get it down the cost curve? Sure. But realistically, is it going to be completely competitive without a price on carbon or some pricing of externalities? I'm not going to hold my breath for that day. So ethylene is, as, as you mentioned, it's, it's, a, it's a huge opportunity. It's a gigantic market. It's also brutally cost competitive. Are there smaller, nichier markets where the economics do work even without a price on carbon? Yeah. So ethanol, um, we're competitive on ethanol, even with first generation ethanol. Um, jet fuel, I think this will be probably the lowest cost um, path to sustainable aviation fuel that uses non-food feedstocks. Um, so there, I think in those things, we will be competitive. When it comes to chemicals, I think we've we've got a way to go. Uh, to get there, I think that will be much more difficult because today 
there's actually no incentive other than brand interest to get there. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. I am interested in the brand interest question. This is something I've been uh, learning a lot about and starting to think a lot about as well, which is, is there going to be enough demand pull from particularly consumer brands, right? If you're Lululemon, uh, you're a consumer brand and you want to differentiate against all the other yoga wear and, and athletic athleisure companies, um, can you get enough, you know, sort of branding and marketing bang for your buck saying, I'm using carbon negative material uh, or ethylene or whatever, that it's worth it to do that given the premium that you're going to pay. In other words, is the green premium justified for some consumer brands today? And uh, to the extent that it is, is that new? Like you've seen this for the past 11 years. Has that changed? Yeah, it, it has definitely changed over the past five years. The interest in brand, by brands to to make other products and and to find other feedstocks is 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 not that old. I would say three to five years, except for the real leaders. Um, we see it in companies like Unilever. We see it in companies like um, like Lululemon, Mebel, the Migros stores in Switzerland. These are all companies that have partnered with us. And you'll hear more over the next three to six months because we have this huge pipeline of products. And um, it's really exciting because they are willing to pay a little more. And in some cases, it is such a small part of the rest of what they're selling. You know, how important is the surfactant in, in the full detergent? And so they are willing to, to pay a little more. I, I think part of why they're doing it, and I, I shouldn't be ascribing motivation because I think you can talk to them yourself, but it's the consumer that drives this as well. Some of it is visionary companies, but the other part of it is also 
a right to be in the market, right? You're starting to see consumers look at labels. What is my carbon footprint? There are apps that tell you what your carbon footprint. Look at airplanes now. Some of the apps that you buy uh, your ticket on will show you what the difference is in the carbon footprint of each of the flights that you could select from. So I think the savvy consumer is really what's driving this. And for us, that's what's really important. What we want is the consumer to start asking, where is the carbon in my stuff coming from? And buy the other product. What are the biggest challenges from a technology perspective that you face? I mean, obviously, you've been at it a long time and you have some commercial plants. So you've gotten over a lot of the hurdles that many companies are yet to face. But there is still a long road ahead. What, what's what's hard about this? Well, if you're doing something disruptive, everything is hard. I mean, I I kid you not, even legislation stands in your way, right? I remember when we first started trying to sell our fuel-grade ethanol, it's like, uh, but you're not bio. Uh, you may not qualify. Oh, wait, no. And so then everybody started to really see that recycled carbon was a thing. And so getting past mentally what people are thinking and and their barriers to accepting a product actually is as big a challenge as the technology. I would not underestimate that that it's just technology. It's acceptance of a new idea. Um, Yeah. And and I can tell you what the challenges are always from a a technology perspective is, is going to the next scale, judging when you should go to the next scale versus do more work, making sure you don't run out of cash before you get to the next scale. And I would also say it's really important for us to think about financing, financing of the first demo and of the first commercial, first of a kind. Boy, that that is a journey that takes way too long. And it, if we're going to bend the carbon curve, we better learn how to shorten that because that is just a waste of time. It's a waste of time and it's expensive capital, right? I'm, I don't know how you did it at Lands Attack, but so many companies have to finance those first commercial assets or first pilot assets on balance sheet, which means they're using venture capital dollars generally to finance those assets, which is, I can tell you as a venture capitalist, it's very expensive capital. It's not the most efficient way to, to finance those projects. It's clearly still a, a wide open gap in the market. I think there's been, my pers- perspective here, and you should tell me if you feel differently, is that where we've seen improvement in the past decade is there are more vehicles to finance the first few of a kind, not the first of a kind. We haven't solved that yet. But once you have operational data from a project that looks pretty similar and you want to finance a few more, now there's options available to you. But those first ones, we just have not solved. I I agree with that. And I would say what people don't think about, they think about the equity component, but not the debt. Getting the debt for those first of a kind at a venture level it's just nuts, right? You you can do it or you can go out and pay an extra $20 million for insurance um, or you can get a loan guarantee. It's just really hard. And every dollar you spend on financing is a dollar that you transfer into your cost of production. And so it's almost... It's almost like you're facing an I'm never going to be competitive scenario, right? It's very hard to to be competitive when you're building the first ones and you're not some big company that can get a loan just by walking into a bank. Um, I want to step back for a second. You know, you're in the do you consider yourself to be a synthetic biology company? 
Do, is Lancetech a SynBio company? Yeah, that's a great question. We are a synthetic biology company, and and I didn't touch upon that, but we do we have developed the ability to genetically modify organisms, and and we are actually making some of these same materials that I talked about from ethanol directly. So going from gases to ethylene directly, then we're going to be cost competitive. Then we don't have all those extra steps. And in fact, we'll be skipping steps and bypassing some of the expensive conventional processing. But yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> so so in the the main, more commercial lens attack process, the uh the, the fermentation process, you're not modifying organisms, but you have additional pathways that you're commercializing now that are kind of next generation products or next generation pathways, that is? Exactly. Our current organism was just um, directed evolution to get us to one that does what it's supposed to do, make ethanol well. But next generation, we will be coming out with the ability to make key molecules like acetone and isopropyl alcohol. We have a, a an agreement with BASF to make octanol. So key raw materials in the chemical industry, starting from gases and using biology to make the exact product we want. And so how has the world of, of synthetic biology evolved during your tenure at Lancetech? It's become very hot in some circles over the past few years in a bunch of contexts, not just in a climate context, obviously in, in, uh, healthcare and, and pharmaceuticals and other spaces as well in, in agriculture. Um, what have you seen kind of emerging as the vanguard there? Well, I mean, to me, synthetic biology is about computing. <laughs> I hate to say it. it. It really comes down to that. Our ability to take massive amounts of data and use it in models to predict how we want to engineer the microbe to make the products we want it to make. And that's what's really happened is we've got a computing revolution that's coupled with techniques that allow you to understand the genome of your organism, right? I remember uh, 15 years ago when the Human Genome Project was out. What was that, a 10-year project? What do we do now? Seconds and you know exactly what a person's genome is and, you know, maybe minutes. And that... That is important. And I would also say the other thing is there is so much money being invested in medical applications, you know, to really understand the genetic engineering, the genome, et cetera. And all of that is portable to industrial biotechnology, right? And so we're leveraging trillions of dollars that are spent in, in medicine to be able to make products that you're going to need in your life. Uh Let's talk for a minute about an aviation. So Lanzatech, um, you've, you mentioned this, that you have a pathway to jet fuel. You also spun out an entire company called Lanzajet focused on the jet fuel pathway. So, um, what is the, what is that chemistry pathway and where does it fit into the broader Lanzatech vision? When I was at UOP Honeywell, yeah, I, I developed the, the, first sustainable aviation fuels. These were made from oils, fats, and greases, right? And we flew the first planes. We flew the flight of the Green Hornet, the F-18. We got ASTM certification, and we showed the world that, yep, you could fly on something other than fossil-derived kerosene. But one of the things that you really, I would say, kept me up at night is 
where is the feedstock going to come for us to be able to make 100 billion gallons of jet fuel from sustainable resources? And so actually, when I when I came to Lensatech, I realized that if we could take waste and make ethanol, well, heck, you ought to be able to take ethanol to jet fuel. And so we developed a technology that takes ethanol to guess what? Ethylene. And then that ethylene is made into bigger chains. And the bigger chains fit right into the jet fuel or the diesel range. So this is just chemistry that's known, but we did a, a job of integrating it because integrating it to make it as cheap and as efficient as possible. And so we spent a lot of time doing that. We were ready to commercialize it. So we got it ASTM certified. We flew a plane from Orlando to Gatwick with Virgin Atlantic using this carbon recycled ethanol-derived drop-in jet fuel. Remember, you got to convert it to hydrocarbon. You, you, you don't drop ethanol into a plane. Um, go ahead. Which also, just to be clear, from a carbon perspective, you're avoiding emissions. That other, you're, you're capturing emissions that otherwise would have gone into the atmosphere. You then convert it to a hydrocarbon. You burn it in a jet engine. It does emit those. It, it, there is emissions associated with that. But from a life cycle perspective, it is carbon neutral because it's coming from avoided emissions in the first place. That's right. But but having said what you just said, I believe that you still have to capture what comes out of that plane and convert it back to products. So it is carbon neutral, but we need to be carbon negative. But you're absolutely right. That's exactly what we're doing. We're avoiding emissions and, um, um, and then they're combusted. So there's the, the two things that you also ought to know, okay, and I'll talk about Lancet in a second, but the two things that I want you to also know is that these synthetic paraffinic fuels, these hydrocarbons burn really, really clean. They don't emit as much particular emissions. And we've worked with the National Research Council in Canada. And what they've shown is lower contrails, lower particulates, etc. And there's no sulfur, they have higher energy density. So I want you to think of these things not just as greenhouse mitigation approaches, but they can also help with other things around air quality. And, and I think that's important. I want us not to always frame our solutions in direct replacements. We want them to substitute, but we want them to be better, right? We need to create a cleaner future. And, and certainly, contrails are a social issue, right? The people who live near an airport are most affected. So uh, it's an environmental justice issue as far as I'm concerned. Um, Lansajet. So we had this technology that was fabulous um, and we wanted to scale it to, a, let's call it a commercial demo, 10 million gallons a year. And we did not want. So what we did is we said, look, let's raise capital for that. But let's be a little bit creative about we raise capital. I already told you at the beginning that that six years between demo and first commercial is a waste of time. So what we did is we said, okay, let's raise, let's create a company that focuses on this technology and scaling it, builds the 10 million gallon a year facility. And then we have investors that have committed to building a first of a kind as well. So that's actually what we did. So when we Ford Lansajet, its shell, its shareholders, Mitsui, Suncor, uh, British Airways and Shell committed to also evaluate in parallel to building this demo, 10 million gallons, what they would do to build a 30 million gallon in their home courts. 
And, and so we compress the cycle, right? Because now we're not going to have to show some unknown person a bunch of data off a demo to get them to build the commercial. And they've already all got cash in their pocket and a commitment to work with us to do that. So LandSuggest was also an exercise, not just in technology scale up, but in business model change. For what it's worth, that's why we did it. You, you talked about the feedstock issue with with um, food waste-based synthetic fuels or sustainable aviation fuels, rather, which is commonly cited as a challenge to getting to real scale there, right? There's like a certain amount of scale you can get. And then at some point it starts to become tough. Is that not true with industrial gases? Are we, do we have an, a, a greater abundance of industrial gases that we could use? Well, especially if you consider transitioning to CO2, right? So if, if right, direct air capture, unfortunately, we have we do have an abundance of CO2. <laughs> yeah. But but I would say, look, we calculated that we could just on steel mill and ferroalloy gases get to about seven to ten billion gallons of ethanol just from there. So and that and that's without tackling any of the other feedstocks like gasified municipal solid waste, right? I mean, think about gasified municipal solid waste. Can you imagine that? I mean, you could just transition your entire petroleum industry to that. I guess my final question for you is you're, I think you're one of the very few people who has lived through both recent cycles of boom, bust, boom in this, what was formerly called clean tech and now called climate tech world. Uh, and also the sort of being inside the same company that whole time, needing to raise capital that whole time. So what has that experience been like for you, seeing that progress over the, the past 11 years? Yeah, um, well, it's been extremely painful. As you know, um, a loss bet makes it harder on the second time around to invest, right? And so a lot of people that invested in the first round were not keen to invest the second time, or at least not in somebody like us who was just kind of on the tail end of the first wave. We have been super fortunate though, because we've had lots of strategic investors who got very excited about what we were doing and figured that they could make a bet on us and see whether in fact we were gonna disrupt their business and they wanted to be part of that. And so we've had a lot of strategic investors. And then I would also point out that our venture backers have been totally supportive. I mean, companies that had 10-year funds who have been with us for 16 years, um, it really is a lot of people who are really committed to, to seeing us be successful. I can't thank them enough. Well, congrats to you on, on making it through that entire, that entire wave and coming out the other side with a commercial product and two companies to show for it between Lancetech and Lanzajet. Um, and thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. This has been really fun. Really honored to be invited. I love your show. I listen to it all the time. So um, we were grateful to be here. Thank you so much. Dr. Jennifer Holmgren is the CEO of Lanzatech. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf, Dalvin Abouaji, and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. <laughs> <laughs>